0: where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the Nephilim. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom.
1: Did I say that right, Jimmy? Nephilim? Yeah, Nephilim. Okay. <laughs> Typically in Hebrew, the accent is on the last syllable.
0: Nephilim. I will try to, to say it correctly throughout the episode. So what are we talking about? Today we're talking about the book of Genesis, and its sixth chapter contains a reference to a strange group known as the Nephilim. It's one of the strangest passages in the Bible, and it's puzzled scholars for literally thousands of years. And in recent times, some have claimed that the Nephilim are aliens or even alien human hybrids because it's always aliens. So, who were the Nephilim, and what is Genesis 6 really trying to say? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, this is a patrons episode,
1: right? Right. Every month we give our patrons a chance to decide one of the topics they'd like to hear about. And this month they picked the Nephilim. Also, people are going to want to listen to the episode all the way to the end because we're going to be discussing some possibilities for who the Nephilim are and how they were created that only become clear very late in the discussion.
0: Very good. Of course, everyone always listens to the entire thing. <laughs> How could you not? It's always uh, I am I, uh, stuck to it even when I'm editing it all the way to the very end. So, Jimmy, where are the Nephilim mentioned in the Bible?
1: There are two passages. The first is in Genesis and the second is in Numbers. So th- that's where we're going to want to go to try to figure out who the Nephilim are. All right, let's start with the Genesis passage. Where does this occur? it's in Genesis 6, just before the flood narrative. Genesis 5 has a big genealogy stretching from Adam to Noah. Then we have at the beginning of chapter 6, the Nephilim passage. And then we have the beginning of the flood narrative, which runs from Genesis 6 to Genesis 9. Here's the Nephilim passage.
0: When men began to multiply on the face of the ground and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were fair and they took to wife such of them as they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, but his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men that were of old, the men of renown.
1: Let's read a little bit more so you can see how this relates to the flood narrative.
0: The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the ground, man and beast and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord
1: yeah and we should all we should probably start by pointing out that you know when it says God repented of having made man, it doesn't mean he literally changed his mind. This is a figure of speech to indicate the wickedness of man. Right Now, in the first passage, there were three groups that we're going to need to pay attention to, the sons of God, the daughters of men, and the Nephilim. We'll need to come back and discuss each of the three groups, so bear them in mind. For the moment, note that the text says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, meaning before the flood, and also afterwards, Mm -hmm. meaning after the flood. In the course of the passage, God makes a dramatic statement that his spirit will not abide with man forever because he's flesh. His days will be 120 years. Then in the second passage that you read, God sees that man has become very wicked and he decides to blot out mankind except for Noah. And he decides to send the flood. The statement about limiting man's days to 120 years and the statement about wiping out mankind... Seem to be related. You know, they both deal with man's not going to live forever. Many scholars have proposed that this statement about the 120 years should be understood in light of the fantastic ages that are attributed to the pre flood patriarchs who were said to have lived for hundreds of years. The idea would be that at this point, God has decided to shorten the human lifespan to 120 years and that's why people don't live as long as they did before the flood. To support this idea, you can point out that the ages of the biblical figures do start decreasing after the flood, but it's a gradual decline. There isn't an immediate drop to 120 years. Also, you know, even if this passage about the 120 years, even if that had nothing to do with the decrease in the human lifespan, the author of Genesis would still need to include a decline somewhere in the book to explain why people don't live as long today, to connect the prodigious pre-flood ages with the later ages that he reports. So you need a decline somewhere in Genesis. It could just be coincidence that it happens here. It may not be related to the 120-year statement. And there are, you know, other problems with that idea. The first is if the passage is about the decrease in lifespan, it's not reflected in the ages of the post-flood patriarchs. In Genesis. I mean, look at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They live to respectively 175, 180, and 147 years of age, all way over 120. Second, none of the figures mentioned in Genesis live for 120 years. But if that's what the passage meant, you'd expect some of them to, and they don't. And then thirdly, after God makes this declaration, the text does not start discussing patriarchs and their ages again. Instead, it moves into the flood narrative. And so I tend to favor a view that's been proposed by other scholars, which is that the 120 years statement relates not to human lifespan in general, but to the flood. The idea is God saying that's how long it's going to be before the flood. So the 120 year period is a grace period that God is giving mankind before the judgment that his sins bring about strikes. And what happens in that grace period? Well, God has Noah build the ark so that the righteous of the human race can be saved. And there's even a hint in the New Testament that this may be the correct interpretation of the passage because Peter refers to how God's patience waited in the days of Noah during the building of the ark. So God's being patient during the building of the ark, that could be a reference to a 120-year grace period. Now, I can't rule out the decreasing lifespan interpretation, but I don't think we should fall into it reflexively. In any event, Genesis 6 says that the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, so before the flood, and also afterwards, so after the flood as well. Evidence for them being in the land is found later on in the book of Numbers, and so that comment about and they were present later. It's that numbers passage that the author of Genesis may be setting up by making that reference. So before we move on,
0: uh, a lot of people at this point will be wondering about those amazing ages of the early figures in Genesis. So so what should we make of those lifespans?
1: Well, some people take their ages fully literally. Others, you know, and they're up there like 800, 900 years, some almost a thousand. Other people have speculated that Maybe time was measured differently back then so that a year was much shorter, maybe, you know, something like a month. So even though it sounds like they were hundreds and hundreds of years old, they really weren't. The problem with that view is we don't have evidence for the Hebrew term for year changing its meaning. And even if it did change its meaning, we wouldn't expect to see the ages gradually decrease in a slope, which is what we do see. So after we have these 800, 900 year old guys, it starts dropping 700, 600, 500, and so forth. Most scholars think that, like other things in early Genesis, these ages are symbolic and were not intended to be taken literally. Instead, they're a way of showing the greatness of the ancients, and I favor this view since there are clues in the text that suggest the ages contain symbolic elements. For example, the biblical patriarch Enoch lives for 365 years, the exact number of days in a solar year before God transfers him to heaven, so that use of 365, that's a famous number, and that suggests a literary figure of some kind. There are also other potential clues in these ages, including numerical patterns involving the numbers 5 and 7, and there are proposals that they relate to the synodic periods of other planets in the solar system. So if Enoch represents Earth's orbit, these others may refer to the synodic periods of other planets, which is the number of days it takes for a planet to get back to the same point in the sky from an earth vantage point. And if that's what's happening, that would also suggest that there are symbolic elements here.
0: Okay. Well, let's talk about the reference to the Nephilim in the book of Numbers. Where does that occur?
1: Well, we should mention what the book of Numbers is, because it's not as familiar to a lot of people as Genesis. Basically, Numbers talks about what happens to the Israelites after God led them out of Egypt, but before they came into the promised land. So it's what happened to them in the wilderness between the two places. The reference to the Nephilim comes in chapter 13 of Numbers, and it's at a crucial moment in the story. The Israelites have gotten near the promised land, and Moses has sent out 12 spies into the land to scope it out for a period of like 40 days. And when the spies get back, this happens.
0: At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron, and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation, and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Yet the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. So they brought to the people of Israel an evil report of the land, which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seem to ourselves
1: like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. So the spies say that the land is really good, but it's inhabited by really strong peoples living in fortified cities. One of the spies, Caleb, says it doesn't matter, uh, that the Israelites will be able to conquer it, but the others disagree. If you keep reading in chapter... 14 of Numbers, this bad report turns the people of Israel against going into the land, so God refuses to lead them in. This is what leads to the Israelites wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They're listening to the bad report of the majority of the spies. God determines he won't lead this generation into the promised land, but will wait until their children have grown up and lead them in instead. For our purposes, the key thing is the mention of the Nephilim in the bad report that the spies give. They say they saw the Nephilim in the land and they identify the Nephilim with a group called the Sons of Anak who come from the Nephilim. This passage also supports the idea that the Nephilim were unusually tall and thus could be considered giants because they say that we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers and they seem to we seem the same to them. So they're apparently really big people. Okay. And is that all the Bible has to say about the Nephilim? Right. So we don't have a lot to work with. On the other hand, that means we don't have to go through a huge mountain of data.
0: Okay. So that brings us right to our theories. What are the theories about the
1: Nephilim? Well, we need to look at the three groups of people that were mentioned in Genesis 6, the sons of God, the daughters of men, and the Nephilim themselves. There are theories connected with each of them that have a bearing on who the Nephilim are.
0: All right, so what are the theories about who the sons of God
1: are? If you go on the internet, one of the popular theories today is that they're aliens. Another popular theory from the ancient world is that they're angels. Some scholars have also proposed that they are human, but rulers. And then in particular, some people have proposed that they're Sethites, that is, descendants of Adam and Eve's third son, Seth. All right. And what are the theories about who the daughters of men are? One idea is that they're human women and, you know, just ordinary human women, as opposed to, you know, alien or angelic beings. Another proposal is that they're common women, meaning women who are not of royal stock, just ordinary common folk. And then finally, that they are non-Sethite women who would be descendants of Cain. So they would be Cainite And what are the theories about who the Nephilim are? One theory is that they're the same as the sons of God. They're just another name for the same group. Another theory is that they're children that the sons of God had with the daughters of men. And then a third theory is that they're an unrelated group that has no connection to either the sons of God or the daughters of men.
0: All right. So those are our theories. Before we move on to our reason perspective, I do want to take a moment to thank our patrons, who make this show possible, including this time James D, Steve S, Mitchell R, and Pat S. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So, Jimmy, what can we say about all this from the reason perspective? What about the theory that the Sons of God were aliens?
1: This idea has been proposed by a lot of people in the ancient astronauts community, um, you know, the people who believe that aliens have been visiting the Earth from ancient times and affecting our development. There are a lot of potential variations on this theory, but here we're going to be focusing on the ideas of a particular individual named Zechariah Sitchin. He's probably done more than anyone else to popularize the idea that the Nephilim were connected with aliens. He was the author of best-selling books like The Twelfth Planet. Uh, He was born in 1920 in Azerbaijan in the Soviet Union, but he moved to the United States and he died in 2010 in New York City at the age of 90. He was an economist and a journalist, but later in life, he held himself out as an expert in Sumerian texts, and that's what made him famous. Sitchin claimed to have translated ancient Sumerian texts and discovered that they portrayed contact with extraterrestrial civilization. Specifically, he claimed that they revealed that there's an additional planet in our solar system, which he counted as the 12th planet. So that's the nine traditional planets, including. Pluto, which is a planet, (laughs) and the sun and the moon, which classically were also considered planets. So that would make 11, you know, the 9 plus 2. And then this new body would be the 12th planet. He claimed that the Sumerians refer to this planet as Nibiru and that it's on a highly elliptical orbit that causes it to swing into the inner solar system every 3,600 years. Uh, He claimed it's inhabited by a race that the Sumerians called the Anunnaki. And every time it swings into the inner solar system, they have the opportunity to visit Earth. According to Sitchin, the Anunnaki have visited Earth repeatedly and interfered with our development. In his book, The Twelfth Planet, which, by the way, I read this book when I was a kid, or (laughs) at least I had it when I was a kid and I went through it. So there's a personal connection. I might have should have mentioned that at the top of the episode. But so this is a book I was familiar with back in the day. But in this book, Sitchin claimed that the sons of God the Nephilim, and the Anunnaki are all the same group. Here's a sketch of Sitchin's theory from Wikipedia.
0: According to Sitchin, Nibiru was the home of a technologically advanced human-like extraterrestrial race called the Anunnaki in Sumerian myth, whose Sitchin states are called the Nephilim in Genesis. He wrote that they evolved after Nibiru entered the solar system, and they first arrived on Earth probably 450,000 years ago, looking for minerals, especially gold, which they found and mined in Africa. Sitchin states that these gods were the rank-and-file workers of the colonial expedition to Earth from planet Nibiru. According to Sitchin, Enki, the Sumerian god of water and human culture, suggested that to relieve the Anunnaki, who had mutinied over their dissatisfaction with their working conditions, that primitive workers, homo sapiens, be created by genetic engineering as slaves to replace them in the gold mines by crossing extraterrestrial genes with those of Homo erectus. According to Sitchin, ancient inscriptions report that the human civilization in Sumer, Mesopotamia, was set up under the guidance of these gods, and human kingship was inaugurated to provide intermediaries between mankind and the Anunnaki, creating the divine right of kings doctrine.
1: So that's what Sitchin claimed.
0: It occurs to me that it sounds a lot like the, uh, the premise of the original Stargate movie, except Egypt.
1: Yes. Uh, yes. Very is, much so.
0: I wonder if that's uh, a, a source for that. Uh, so what evidence does Sitchin cite for his theory about the Nephilim?
1: In The Twelfth Planet, he seems to offer three arguments. Uh, first, he translates the term Nephilim as those who were cast down, meaning aliens who came down to Earth. He also sometimes translates Nephilim as those who came down. Uh, second, he translates the statement in Genesis that they were the men of renown as they were the men of the rocket. And he refers to them as the people of the fiery rocket, indicating the means by which they came down to earth. And then third, he reads the Genesis text against the interpretation of his, of the Sumerian texts that he's made. And he's, since he thinks the Sumerian texts refer... To aliens called the Anunnaki, he asserts that Genesis is referring to the same people, just by a different name, Nephilim.
0: All right, let's look at each of his arguments. Should we read Genesis in light of Sitchin's claims regarding aliens being discussed in Sumerian texts?
1: There's certainly nothing wrong with comparing biblical literature with other parallel literature from, you know, the same period or earlier. The books of the Bible were written at specific times and places, and you can often shed light on them by looking at other things that people of the time were reading. In particular, there are parallels between things in Genesis and things that are written about in Mesopotamian literature. I should point out the term Mesopotamia means the land between the rivers, the two rivers being the Tigris and the Euphrates. Uh, Today, the term Mesopotamia is used to refer to a large region between and around these rivers. It covers parts of Iraq, Iran, Syria, and even Turkey. In the ancient world, it included civilizations like Sumer, Akkadia, Assyria, and Babylonia. These nations had overlapping cultures, so the Anunnaki appear in the literature of more than one of these civilizations. And so rather than always saying Sumerian or Babylonian, I'll just refer to Mesopotamian. The author of Genesis is frequently responding to ideas discussed in Mesopotamian literature and offering a theological rebuttal of them. Genesis thus corrects, the pagan Mesopotamian ideas about creation and the flood, uh, ideas that are found in works like the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Atrahasis Epic. So it's quite appropriate, and scholars have no problem with reading early Genesis in light of Mesopotamian literature to see what light the two may shed on each other. Bible scholars do that all the time. But just because it's legitimate to compare two things doesn't mean that you can claim anything you want about Uh, Your claims need to be backed up by evidence, and this is where Sitchin runs into problems. In the first place, he commits what you could refer to as the ancient astronaut's fallacy. In essence, this involves interpreting ancient accounts as involving extraterrestrials when the evidence does not warrant doing so. Could people in the past have seen aliens and interpreted them as gods or monsters? Sure, but what's the evidence for that? It's one thing to propose an idea, and it's another to provide concrete evidence for it. All too often, people seize on superficial similarities like, oh, this god came from the sky, so that must mean this god is an alien, just because it came from the sky. And they just run with these ideas without critically cross-examining them. Sometimes... They even take something as evidence of ancient aliens when it's demonstrably something else and scholars know what it is. For example, back in episode 43, I talked about claims that there are UFOs in medieval pictures of the crucifixion, uh, where there are what look like little spaceships with a person in them on each side of the cross. People without a background in art history have taken this as evidence that people in the Middle Ages were encountering aliens, but art historians are familiar with what these images actually are. They're not aliens. They're stylized depictions of the sun and the moon bearing witness to the death of the Son of God. So, the sun and the moon appear in these positions, one on each side of the cross, in all kinds of paintings of the crucifixion, And in some of the paintings, they're more stylized than others. So like, you know, how sometimes we'll draw the sun today realistically, but other times we'll draw it with a little face. Mm -hmm. And in the Middle Ages, they would sometimes draw it a little further, take a little further and draw it with a little person inside it. And so and because it's the sun, it's got spiky rays coming out of it and and that it, it, you know if it's stylized enough it can look like a little spaceship with a central ball with the person and then these projections coming out of it so to 21st century eyes it can kind of sort of look like a ufo but that's just not what it is it's just an extreme style version of an of a theme that's well familiar to art historians Sitchin's ancient astronauts' claims about Mesopotamian literature are something we will discuss in more detail in future episodes, but his claims regarding the Nephilim and Genesis are just wrong. Well, what about the idea of
0: translating
1: Nephilim as
0: those who were cast down or those who came down?
1: Those who came down is really problematic. The Hebrew verb for to go down is yarad, and there's no way to get Nephilim out of the verb Yarad if you apply the standard Hebrew prefixes and suffixes and infix vowels. You to Yarad, you know, you're you're going to have the equivalent of Y R and D, Yod, Resh, and uh, Dalit, and you don't hear those sounds in Nephilim. There's there are also problems with translating it as those who were cast down. This is an example of Sitchin fudging something that's otherwise a possible translation. Uh, To cast something means to throw it. So if the Nephilim meant those who were cast down, it would mean those who were thrown down, you know, thrown down by somebody. Being thrown down is different, though, than simply falling down. If I say the apple fell down, it may have done so of its own, you know, whenever an apple falls off a tree. But if I say Joe threw the apple down, or Joe cast the apple down, I imply that somebody, Joe, actively caused the apple to move downward by throwing it. Now, here's the thing. Some scholars have proposed that Nephilim is a noun taken from the Hebrew verb nafal, which means to fall. If that's where Nephilim comes from, then the term would mean the fallen ones or those who fell. That's close to, but not quite the same thing as those who were cast down. So this is an example of Sitchin fudging a possible translation. But even if you propose fallen ones as your translation of Nephilim, which a lot of scholars buy, there are reasons to question that interpretation. First, as the biblical scholar Michael Heiser points out, this this word isn't spelled the way you would expect. Uh, certainly not in the Masoretic text of the Hebrew Bible. By the ordinary rules of Hebrew grammar, you'd convert the verb nephal into the noun nephulim or nophelim, not nephilim as we find find in the Masoretic text. Consequently, he and others have suggested that nephilim isn't based on the Hebrew verb nephal, meaning to fall. Instead, he proposes it's based on the Aramaic word Naphila, which means giant. And that's the way the translators of the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, understood this term. Also, the translators of the Aramaic Targums. When the Septuagint translated Genesis 6, they used the Greek word gigantes, which means giants, in place of Nephilim. And they did the same thing in Numbers 13.34. And note that the context of Numbers thirteen thirty four, the context of in Numbers thirteen supports that reading even in Hebrew, because when the spies came back, they said the promised land contained men of great stature, and that we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. And they're talking about the Nephilim there, the sons of Anak. So there, there are quite good reasons to see the Nephilim not as fallen ones but simply as giants. And in that case, Sitchin would just be wrong. All right, one question about the term giants. How big are we talking here? Not as big as you might think. Today, we often think of giants as being huge, you know, 12, 20, or 50 feet tall, like in the movie, The Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. But that's not automatically the case in ancient literature. The average person in the ancient world was a little more than five feet tall, and anybody notably taller than that would be considered a giant by ancient standards, even if they were just between six and seven feet tall. In fact, if you've ever seen the show Twid, Twin Peaks, so shout out to Ali Kidd, who's a big fan of Twin Peaks, <laughs> there is a character who's referred to as the giant. He's portrayed by the actor Carol Striken. and he also played Loxana Troy's assistant Mr. Hom on Star Trek Next Generation. <laughs> he was only seven foot two but he's still referred to as the giant on Twin Peaks. So you don't have to be superhumanly enormous to be considered a giant from the perspective of ordinary people.
0: Or Andre the Giant, which is a... Andre the Giant too, sure, (laughs) yeah. So what about uh, Sitchin's idea of translating the men
1: of renown as the people of the rocket? Oh, this one's awful. In (laughs) Genesis 6, the phrase translated men of renown in Hebrew is Anshe Hashem which would literally mean men of the name or men of name. Shem is an ordinary Hebrew word that means name. It has nothing to do with rockets. In fact, biblical Hebrew does not have a word for rocket. Modern Hebrew does. In modern Hebrew, til means missile and raketa means rocket but there is no word for rocket in biblical Hebrew. In fact, you can even hear how ta is just a lone word from English because they didn't have another word for this. I did a full-text electronic search of halot, the Hebrew and Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, which is like the standard scholarly resource, the big one. And the word rocket does not appear once. To get people of the rocket out of men of the Shem Sitchin has to propose a completely unknown meaning for the word Shem. Instead of translating it the normal way as name, he makes an elaborate and bizarre argument based on different languages, Sumerian and Akkadian. He claims the Hebrew term Shem is based on the word Shumu in these other languages, and he identifies the syllable Mu as, get this, an oval-topped conical object and as something that rises straight, so an oval-topped conical object that rises straight. And he then identifies the syllable shu as a relative pronoun, meaning that which. So he claims that shumu means that which is a mu, or skyborne vehicle, or rocket. All of this is nonsense. We know what meanings shumu had in ancient Sumerian and Akkadian, and none of them fit what Sitchin claims. So despite what he says, Sitchin apparently had no training in these languages, and he's completely off base here. We'll have a link to a page by Michael Heiser where he goes into why. In any event, Shem is just the ordinary Hebrew word for name. So men of the Shem just means men of name or men of renown.
0: If Sitchin's argument for his views aren't convincing, is there evidence against
1: them? Biblical scholars are quite open to the idea that there is a Mesopotamian background for Genesis 6, and we'll be discussing that background as we go along. But no biblical scholars of any perspective, even atheist biblical scholars, buy Sitchin's claims. Neither do scholars of Mesopotamian literature. Nobody in the scholarly community buys this stuff. In particular, there is no evidence that the group called the Anunnaki are the same as the Nephilim. The first thing to note is that they have different and unrelated names. Anunnaki and Nephilim are not derived from the same roots. Of course, it's always possible for one culture to have another name for the same group, but most of the time when you have unrelated names, you're talking about unrelated groups. I mean, if I call one group the Hatfields and and, and another person refers to the McCoys, they're probably two different groups unless you can show evidence that they're not. And so to claim the Anunnaki and the Nephilim are the same group, you're going to need evidence. You're going to need points of contact to prove this. And Sitchin does not have good evidence. Uh, Genesis 6 and Numbers 13 contain all of the biblical data about the Nephilim, and it's almost nothing, meaning that there is no effective basis that Sitchin could use to propose the identity of the two groups. And what we do know about the two groups doesn't fit. The idea that they're the same. In Mesopotamian mythology, the Anunnaki are a group of deities. Accounts of them vary widely. In some accounts, there are nine of them, in others, 50, 300, or even 600. In some accounts, they're created by the Sumerian deity An, but in other accounts, they're created by the Babylonian deity Marduk. In some accounts, they're pictured as dwelling in heaven, on earth, or in the underworld where the dead are. And in some accounts, they seem to judge the dead. Given this vagueness, I mean, the Anunnaki are kind of all over the map. It's really hard to link them with any specific group. But one thing that is clear is that they're a group of deities. But the Nephilim of the Bible are not conceptualized as a group of deities, as we'll see, we've already seen, and as we'll continue to see as we go along.
0: If Sitchin's ancient astronaut theory doesn't match the biblical and archaeological evidence, what can we say about the Nephilim? Do we need to look at them from the faith perspective at this point?
1: Not yet. At this stage, we're just trying to figure out the meaning of what the biblical texts dealing with the Nephilim are. And that's no different than trying to figure out the meaning of any ancient text, you know, like the ones from Mesopotamia. You don't have to adopt the faith perspective To figure out what a text means, at least in most circumstances. So there's still more to be done from the reason perspective. In particular, we need to see what reason has to say about the way the biblical text treats the three groups that we mentioned, the sons of God, the daughters of men, and the Nephilim themselves. What would reason say
0: about the meaning of the sons of God in Genesis 6?
1: The term sons of God can mean a bunch of different things. If we're dealing with a polytheistic culture that has many deities, it could be a reference to literal sons of God, heavenly beings who were the biological children of the high God. But the author of Genesis is clearly a monotheist. In fact, if you read Genesis carefully against its ancient Near Eastern background, he's doing a lot to make it clear that the creator is utterly different than any other being. That's why in Genesis 1, he doesn't even use the words for the sun and the moon when he says God created them. He only describes them as great lights that rule the day and the night. That's because, if you know the ancient Near Eastern background, in the languages of these cultures, the terms for sun and moon were the same as the names for the sun god and the moon god. So if he used those names... He could have risked the reader misunderstanding as like, oh, the, the creator made the sun god, and then the creator made the moon god, and he doesn't want them thinking that. So he, he, by calling them lights rather than using their names, the author of Genesis is demythologizing them and signaling the reader not to worship them, but to worship the creator instead. So, the author of Genesis is not conceiving of sons of God as biological children belonging to the same race of deities as the Creator. There's something else, which means they're created beings. They might be created beings who are heavenly or supernatural, in which case they are what we today would call angels. And there is evidence for this interpretation in the Old Testament. The term sons of God gets used for angels. To cite just one example, in the book of Job, the sons of God come before God to report to him in his heavenly court right at the beginning of the book. That clearly makes them angelic heavenly beings. On the other hand, some have proposed that the sons of God in this passage might be human beings who are rulers. They could be political rulers like kings or religious rulers like priests or they could be both. In the ancient world, the two offices were often one. You know, The king was also the high priest. And there are passages in the Old Testament that you could appeal to in support of this idea. For example, in Psalm 2, God addresses the king of Israel and says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So kings could be called sons of God. It's harder to cite a specific verse that does the same thing with priests, but since priests were obviously connected with God in a special way, it's not hard to see how they could be called sons of God. In In ancient Hebrew idiom, anybody connected with something can be called the son of that thing. So, like, if you're talking about people from the south of Israel, they call them sons of the south. Or if you're talking about people who, you know, I don't know, play the flute, you could call them sons of the flute. So if you have these priests who have an obvious connection with God, you could call them sons of God. On the other hand, the sons of God might be a group of humans who were connected with God in another way, such as by being holy to him or being particularly righteous. And in the book of Wisdom, this is Wisdom 216, the righteous man is said to call God his father, making the righteous man a son of God. In particular, some have proposed that the sons of God in Genesis 6 are a specific group of righteous people, namely the line of righteous people who descended from Adam and Eve's third son, Seth. you recall their first son, Cain, turned wicked when he killed their second son, Abel, and then they had a third son, Seth, as well as other kids. And, And a line of righteous people came from Seth in contrast with the line of wicked people who descended from Cain. And you read about these two lines in the early pre-flood narrative in Genesis, and it's clear the line of Seth is better than the line of Cain. However, unlike the other views of the sons of God, this one does not have any explicit basis in the text. There are no passages that call the descendants of Seth sons of God. You could still speculate that this is who is meant because the line of uh, Seth is depicted in Genesis as being more pleasing to God than the line of Cain, but you don't have anything that says it. And there are also other possible meanings for the term son of God or sons of God, but they're not relevant to our discussion of Genesis 6.
0: If those are the relevant meanings for sons of God, what are the possible meanings for daughters of men?
1: Since the sons of God are contrasted with the daughters of men, the possibilities for who they are basically mirror the different theories about the sons of God. Taken in the most straightforward way, the term daughters of men would indicate human women in general. This mirrors the idea that the sons of God would be angelic heavenly beings. So you've got these angelic beings versus these human women. In that case, Genesis 6 would describe heavenly angelic creatures taking human women as wives and having children with them. This idea is challenging to many people today, but we should point out that the phrase daughters of men would most naturally be understood to mean human women. If you don't know anything else about the context, that's what you'd take the phrase to mean, just ordinary women. But if you could establish that the sons of God are actually a group of humans, that would point to a more restricted meaning for the term daughters of men. In this case, the daughters of men would be women whose fathers are human but aren't among the sons of God. For example, if the sons of God are rulers, either political or religious, then the daughters of men would mean daughters of the common folk, people who were not of the ruling class. The passage would then be about rulers who took wives from among the common people and had children with them. Or, if the sons of God are righteous people, like the righteous line of Seth, then the daughters of men would be wicked people, like from the unrighteous line of Cain. In that case, the passage would be about how the line of the righteous came to be mixed with the line of the wicked, leading to, I guess, the wickedness that produced the flood.
0: All right, if those are the theories about the sons of God and the daughters of men, how do the Nephilim fit into this picture?
1: One possible view is that they're a group that has no relation with either the sons of God or the daughters of men. Grammatically, that is possible. After discussing the sons of God marrying the daughters of men, Genesis four six four simply says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also, also afterward. So it doesn't explicitly say that they're connected. They thus could be an unrelated third group. But there's a big problem with this interpretation. One of them is relevance. The idea that they are an unrelated group would make their mention in this text largely irrelevant to the discussion. The author of Genesis would just happen to throw in that in the ancient world, there was also this third unrelated group, just, I guess, as a matter of curiosity. But normally, writers mention facts that are relevant to the discussion at hand, not unrelated bits of trivia. Another problem is what he goes on to say. It says that the Nephilim were not only present before the flood, but also afterwards when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. The text thus returns to the subject of the sons of God marrying the daughters of men. So it says it before, and then it says afterward, the Nephilim were on the earth later when this happened. And that strongly suggests that the Nephilim are not an unrelated group and that the sons of God and the daughters of men are connected to them in some way. In fact, the most natural interpretation is that the reason the Nephilim were on the earth before the flood is that the sons of God mated with the daughters of men before the flood happened. And then, because they mated with the daughters of men again after the flood the Nephilim were also on the earth after the flood. So the idea that the Nephilim are an unrelated third group is hard to sustain. Another view that's been proposed is that the Nephilim are the same group as the sons of God, and this is the view that was endorsed by Zechariah Sitchin. But as we just saw, the text strongly suggests that the Nephilim are the children of the sons of God and the daughters of men, and that this kind of mating happened both before and after the flood. That would make the Nephilim a different group than the sons of God. It's the sons of the sons of God. It thus appears that the author of Genesis means us to understand the Nephilim as the children of the other two groups.
0: So we have a good idea who the Nephilim were, but we have a variety of theories about the sons of God and the daughters of men, some of which are more plausible than others. Is
1: there a way of distinguishing between them from the reason perspective? At this point, we have four basic theories. The son, Number one, the sons of God are angelic beings that intermarried with human women. Number two, the sons of God are rulers who married common women. Number three, the sons of God are righteous men who married the daughters of the unrighteous. And then number four, the sons of God specifically are the righteous line of Seth, which intermarried with the unrighteous line of Cain. The least plausible ideas of those Possibilities from the reason perspective is the third, the idea that the sons of God are the righteous and the daughters of men are the unrighteous in general. There's no good basis for this in the text. While the sons of God might possibly be taken to refer to the righteous, the idea that the phrase daughters of men means unrighteous women is not what you would expect from the phrase. Also, the Nephilim would be the children of these two groups, and there's no reason to see why the daughters of righteous men. And unrighteous women would be giants. I mean, just because your dad is good and your mom is bad, that doesn't make you a giant or a men of renown. I mean, you'd think they'd just be ordinary men at best. The next most implausible interpretation of this idea is that the sons of God are Sethites who married Cainites. The idea that the daughters of men would mean daughters of the line of Cain is really speculative. And hard to sustain from the text, daughters of men should mean daughters of not Cainite men specifically, but something more general than that. So it's not what you would expect from the phrase. It's also to see hard to see why the marriage of Sethites and Canaanites would produce giants or men of renown. And it's hard to see how the line of Seth and the line of Cain could have intermarried after the flood to give rise to the Nephilim being in the land again later on. I mean, at least if you think the flood was uh, universal, it's hard to see how those two lines would get hooked up together again after the flood. More plausible is the idea that the sons of God are rulers and the daughters of men are women who belong to the common folk. This interprets the phrase sons of God, according to a usage that does have something of a basis in the text, you know, for rulers like the kings of Israel could be called God's son. And the phrase daughters of men could plausibly be taken to refer to ordinary common women. And there would be a basis in for the children of such unions being men of renown. Because uh, royal princes have high social standing and thus renown. Uh, they also go on to have important careers where they play important roles in society, like being mighty warriors, further increasing their fame. One could even argue that they're taller than most people and thus could be considered giants. Partly this is because people want taller, physically imposing leaders. Note that King Saul was seen, if you look in First uh, Samuel 9 and 10, King Saul is seen as suitable to be Israel's first king, in part because he was a head taller than anybody else. Also, and you know, in the ancient world where your king's leading you into battle, you want him to be a big, strong, tall guy. Also, rulers had better access to food and better nutrition than regular people in the ancient world. So they would also grow taller for that reason. So the rulers of the children of rulers and common women is a quite possible understanding here, at least given these facts. But in terms of what the text likely means from the reason perspective, the idea that the sons of God are angelic beings and the daughters of men are human is also possible. That fits with the well-established Old Testament meaning for sons of God. In fact, the term sons of God in the Old Testament means angels, angelic heavenly beings, in most of the passages where it's used. So this is the most common meaning of the term. This also fits with the most natural understanding of the phrase daughters of men as just human women in general, not some special group of them. And it would explain why their children are anomalous, in the ancient world, the children of humans and heavenly beings were often said to be larger and stronger and more heroic than ordinary people, you know, think about part-human, part-divine heroes like Gilgamesh or Hercules. And this would fit very naturally with the idea that the Nephilim were giants or men of renown. Of course, we'd still have to answer the question of whether angels could produce children with human women, but that's a question for the faith perspective. From the reason perspective, Given the way the terms are used elsewhere in the Old Testament and what we know about ancient literature, the idea that the sons of God were angelic is a very live option.
0: Before we go to the faith perspective, do we have any information from other ancient sources that could shed light on the Nephilim? What did the rabbis or the church fathers have to say?
1: The earliest records we have on this question date from what scholars call the Second Temple period. Uh, This is the era after many Jews returned from the Babylonian exile and rebuilt the temple since Solomon's had been destroyed. It lasted, the Second Temple era, lasted until the late first century when the Romans destroyed the temple again. So it's the period when Jesus lived. One thing that is very well agreed upon by the sources in this period is that the Nephilim were giants. What's disagreed upon is who their fathers, the sons of God, were. On this question, both our Jewish and Christian sources are inconclusive, and you find different sources both supporting the idea that the sons of God were heavenly beings and that they were purely human. For example, Second Temple Era books like First Enoch and Jubilees strongly support the idea that the sons of God were angelic beings. So does the Damascus document, which is one of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so do church fathers like Justin Martyr, Clement of Alexandria, and St. Ambrose of Milan. On the other hand, you also find texts supporting the idea that they were purely human. Early Christian writers like Julius Africanus, Ephraim the Syrian, and St. Augustine thought that they were humans who were descendants of Seth. The medieval Jewish scholar Rashi thinks that they were human judges and rulers, though Rashi lived well after the Second Temple period, so he's a late source. The early Jewish sources, as opposed to some of the Christian ones, favor the idea that these were angelic beings. In any event, there isn't universal agreement on who the sons of God were, and you can find even doctors of the church like Ambrose and Augustine on opposing sides of the question. That's significant from the faith perspective, but from the reason perspective, we have a problem in that even the Second Temple Jewish sources that we have date from hundreds of years after Genesis was written, maybe as much as 700 to 1,000 years, depending on when you date Genesis. And that limits their value as historical sources concerning what a much earlier text meant. What we really want to help us is not material written centuries after Genesis, but material written before it.
0: And do we have any
1: such material? Funny you should ask. Yes, (laughs) recent scholarly attention has focused on a group of beings in Mesopotamian mythology known as the Apkalu. The Apkalu were divine beings that were created in the watery abyss that surrounded and was underneath the world. They were beings of great wisdom, and they could be either good or bad kind of like angels, mm. they they came to Earth, although they were deities, they came to Earth and taught mankind various arts, including how to work metal and how to practice magic. This divine knowledge was the basis of Mesopotamian civilization and was held to be what made their civilization great. So the reason we here in Babylon are so great is the divine Apkalu came down and taught us how to do all this stuff. The Apkallu also married human women and had offspring with them. These children were giants and men of renown. The gods punished the world by sending the flood through which a human being and his family, along with various animals, were <laughs> preserved in a big boat. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, this human is named Utnapishtim, but he's given other names in other Mesopotamian literature. Also, The line of the Apkalu's human descendants continued after the flood in the form of divine-human hybrids, like the Babylonian hero Gilgamesh. And the Apkalu were sometimes depicted using protective figurines known as watchers who would, for example, watch over your house and protect it. So you've got an Apkalu as this little figurine. It's like, this is my watcher here. He's going to watch my house and protect it. Except for the last point, that they are sometimes called watchers, all of this closely parallels what we find in Genesis 6. Created heavenly beings mate with human women. They have children of great size who become men of renown, and these offspring are present both before the flood and afterwards. I mean, all that's Genesis 6 and Mesopotamian. The Apkalu may have a different name than sons of God in Genesis, but they have multiple points of contact, unlike the Anunnaki. Consequently, ancient Near Eastern scholars take the idea that the Apkalu form part of the intellectual background for Genesis 6 seriously. At least they have in recent years. This is a rising topic of discussion. Since the Mesopotamian literature is older than Genesis, we thus have something that predates Genesis and that has multiple parallels to it. So this could very well form its background.
0: uh, Just as an aside, it sounds very similar. Again, I'm drawing parallels to other literature. It sounds very similar to Tolkien's Valar and Maya in his Silmarillion and his creation myth, who intermarried with. Uh, el- well, elves in in their uh-huh. case, but you know that sort of thing. So it's very interesting to see this parallel in in other literature as well. Yeah. So, speaking of literature, besides Genesis, do we have any other echoes of this in Jewish literature?
1: Yes. For example, in the Second Temple era book known as First Enoch, there is a section called the Book of the Watchers. Mm. Remember how the apkalu had these figurines called Watchers? Well, there's this. Thing, and this is also in the book of Daniel, where you have angels referred to as Watchers. The book of the Watchers is first Enoch chapters one to thirty six. This Hebrew literature uses the equivalent term for watcher, and it gets used for created heavenly beings who mate with humans, teach them secret arts including magic, and that lead up to the flood. Here are some excerpts from first Enoch's Book of the Watchers.
0: And it came to pass, when the children of men had multiplied, that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters. And the angels, the children of the heaven, saw and lusted after them, and said to one another, Come, let us choose us wives from among the children of men, and beget us children. And Semjaza, who was their leader, said unto them, I fear ye will not indeed agree to do this deed, and I alone shall have to pay the penalty of a great sin. And they all answered him and said, Let us all swear an oath and all bind ourselves by mutual imprecations, not to abandon this plan, but to do this thing. Then swear they all together and bound themselves by mutual imprecations upon it, and they were in all 200.
1: So you can already hear how this is an expanded version of the same events we read about in Genesis 6, and it clearly identifies the sons of God as angels who marry the daughters of men but let's keep going.
0: And all the others together with them took unto themselves wives and each chose for himself one. And they began to go in unto them and to defile themselves with them. And they taught them charms and enchantments and the cutting of roots and made them acquainted
1: with plants. Remember how in recent episodes, we've discussed how in the ancient world, magic and medicine were bound up with each other. So herbology, was coupled with magic incantations and charms. That's what they're referring to here with these incantations and cutting of roots and being acquainted with plants.
0: And they became pregnant and they bare great giants who consumed all the acquisitions of men. And when men could no longer sustain them, the giants turned against them and devoured mankind. And they began to sin against birds and beasts and reptiles and fish and to devour one another's flesh and drink the blood. Then the earth laid accusation against the lawless ones. And Azazel taught men to make swords and knives and shields and breastplates and made known to them the metals of the earth and the art of working them and bracelets and ornaments and the use of antimony and the beautifying of the eyelids and all kinds of costly stones and all coloring tinctures. And there arose much godlessness and they committed fornication and they were led astray and became corrupt in all their ways. Samjaza taught enchantments and root cuttings, Armaros the resolving of enchantments, Barakijal taught astrology, Kokabel the constellations, Ezekiel the knowledge of the clouds, Araqiel the signs of the earth, Shamsiel the signs of the sun, and Sariel the course of the moon, and as men perished they cried,
1: and their cry went up to heaven. So these angels are corrupting the world by teaching men arts like metalworking so they can make weapons and do warfare, and ways to beautify women and further the cause of lust, as well as teaching them magic and astrology. And the world becomes full of violence and wickedness, just like in Genesis 6 right before the flood. But the good angels up in heaven take note of this.
0: And then Michael, Uriel, Raphael, and Gabriel looked down from heaven and saw much blood being shed upon the earth, and all lawlessness being wrought upon the earth. And they said to the Lord of the ages, Lord of lords, God of gods, king of kings, and God of the ages, they have gone to the daughters of men upon the earth, and have slept with the women, and have defiled themselves, and revealed to them all kinds of sins, and the women have borne giants, and the whole earth has thereby been filled with blood and unrighteousness. And now, behold, the souls of those who have died are crying and making their suit to the gates of heaven, and their lamentations have ascended and cannot cease because of the lawless deeds which are wrought on the earth. Then said the Most High, the Holy and Great One spake, and sent Uriel to the son of Lamech, and said to him, Go to Noah, and tell him in my name, Hide thyself, and reveal to him the end that is approaching that the whole earth will be destroyed, and a deluge is about to
1: come upon the whole earth and will destroy all that is on it. This is very clearly an expanded version of the events of Genesis 6, but note that it, it involves the same ideas that are found in Mesopotamian literature. Created heavenly beings come to earth, teach mankind destructive crafts, marry human women, and result in giants as offspring. Since we have the same concepts in the Mesopotamian literature written before Genesis and the same ideas in Jewish culture after Genesis in the Second Temple period, that strongly suggests that these ideas were preserved through the intervening centuries and informed the background of Genesis. So while I can't rule out 100% the idea that the sons of God are human rulers— The surrounding cultural context strongly suggests from the reason perspective that we're meant to understand the sons of God as heavenly angelic beings.
0: All right. It is now time for the faith perspective, because
1: what can we say about this? Could an angel really impregnate a human woman? Let's look at the case against the idea. It seems to me there are basically two arguments against it. First, angels by nature are spiritual beings that do not have bodies. So you can argue they're not capable of physical reproduction. Second, because they are naturally disembodied, they wouldn't want to reproduce. I mean, physical creatures find other members of their own species attractive because it's God's and evolution's way of encouraging them to breed and propagate the species. They usually don't find other members of other species attractive. You know, a lion does not find an octopus attractive and vice versa, because they're different species, mating with that is not going to help propagate anything. So as a result, spiritual beings like angels who don't die and don't reproduce shouldn't have reproductive desires. So can these two arguments be answered? I think they can. I've never been particularly impressed with the first argument, that they wouldn't be capable of reproduction. The Bible depicts angels taking human form, and in some passages, it's clear that the forms are physically interacting with the world and doing things ordinary bodies are capable of. For example, in Genesis 18, two angels eat a meal with Abraham. And then in Genesis 19, the same two angels eat another meal with Abraham's nephew Lot, and they also grab Lot with their hands. It says they grabbed him with their hands and pulled him back inside the house when he's being threatened by some people. So if angels can assume human forms capable of eating meals and grabbing people and dragging them inside, I can't rule out that these assumed forms could also be capable of things like reproduction. And even if their assumed forms aren't capable of reproduction themselves, that doesn't mean they couldn't accomplish it in other ways. Uh, angels are clearly telekinetic, and they use that ability to execute judgment on the wicked in the Bible, you know, regularly. They're even capable of telekinetically manipulating microorganisms, as when, in 2 Samuel 24, David wickedly takes a census. And an angel is then spreading a plague in Israel and is about to hit Jerusalem with the plague. So you've got an angel in control telekinetically of these microorganisms that are causing the plague. And if angels could control plague microorganisms, they could control human reproductive cells. I mean, we're talking Mm. the same scale here. So even if the human forms that angels take don't have functioning organs, they could still telekinetically produce the needed germ cells and alter their genetic code to produce larger than usual offspring. I mean, after all, if we with our clumsy human science can resequence genes, the angels should be able to do so given their greater knowledge and power. So I don't see a good basis for categorically denying that angels would be incapable of impregnating a human woman. So what about the idea that they wouldn't want to? For me, this is a more serious argument. As non-physical beings, angels shouldn't have a desire to reproduce. But angels also shouldn't have a desire to sin in general. And some of them do, because that's how we got demons. Sin is by its nature irrational. And angels are obviously capable of doing irrational things. So I don't think this objection is conclusive. We know that good angels sometimes take human form and live for a time as if they were human so that they can carry out God's will. Maybe bad angels sometimes take human form and live for a time as if they were human so they can violate God's will. And maybe that's the attraction for them. It isn't the human women themselves that are attractive. It's the idea of defiling beautiful things in God's creation that they find attractive. Or who knows, if, if the human forms they assume are, like data, fully functional, maybe they have the ordinary physical desires that go along with that physical form. So when they're in human form, they find the idea of human reproductive behavior as attractive as humans do or maybe it's both. They both feel human attractions while in human form, and they want to defile beautiful things in God's creation. So I don't think this objection is conclusive either. Does that mean you're comfortable with the idea of angels might be capable of mating with humans? No, it doesn't. I just think the arguments that it can't or wouldn't happen are inconclusive. And I have too much respect for the fact that God has built mysteries into his world to say that something can't happen just because it rubs my modern sensibilities the wrong way. Your mileage may vary. And if you think this absolutely could not happen, I'm not going to tell you you're wrong because I also can't prove the reverse. And you may well be right. You won't get any argument from me.
0: All right, let's look for a moment at what the author of Genesis is trying to do by telling us about the sons of God and the Nephilim. Why
1: does he include this story? Like a lot of things in Genesis, he seems to be providing an answer to pagan ideas that were present at the time. Uh, this is something that you have to study ancient cultures to pick up on, but once you've done that, it's really obvious. We already mentioned about how he avoids the names for the sun and the moon because he doesn't want the reader concluding that the high god made the sun god and the moon god. In the same way, in some versions of the flood story, the reason the gods send the flood, this is in Mesopotamian literature, Is because humans have gotten so numerous that they are making too much noise at night and are keeping the gods awake. So the gods vindictively kill the humans to stop the noise. And remember how in Mesopotamian culture, it was the Apkalu that brought humans the knowledge of all these different skills, including how to make weapons and do magic. And that was what made Mesopotamian culture great in Mesopotamian eyes. What the author of Genesis is doing is demythologizing these ideas. He's saying, no, the flood didn't come because the gods were vindictive, because the noise that humans were making at night was too much for them. The true God sent the flood as a just punishment because of the sins being committed on earth. And if we're right that he's demythologizing the Apkalu as merely angels, he's saying Pagan gods have not benefited mankind by giving us the skills that made Mesopotamia great. Instead, fallen angels corrupted mankind by teaching them harmful skills like warfare and magic. Or, you could argue that he's demythologizing the Apkalu even further by portraying them as human rulers who bred with ordinary women, though that's hard to sustain from the evidence. Either way, his message is to correct false pagan ideas by providing a theologically accurate monotheist counter-narrative. Does that mean we need to take this text fully literally? No. One of the things that the church recognizes is that the first 11 chapters of Genesis where this story is found are not fully literal, and they contain various figurative or symbolic elements. That doesn't mean they contain no history, but they relate history in a literary way. They're somewhere between pure history and pure symbol. Here's what Pope Pius XII had to say in his 1950 encyclical Humanae Generis.
0: The first 11 chapters of Genesis, although properly speaking, not conforming to the historical method used by the best Greek and Latin writers or by competent authors of our time, do, nevertheless, pertain to history in a true sense, which, however, must be further studied and determined by exegetes. The same chapters, in simple and metaphorical language adapted to the mentality of a people, but little cultured, both state the principal truths which are fundamental for our salvation and also give a popular description of the origin of the human race and the chosen people.
1: So these chapters pertain to history, but they aren't written the way history was written in later periods. Instead, he says they use simple and metaphorical language to communicate God's truth. Uh, The Catechism of the Catholic Church applies this principle to the first three chapters of Genesis when it says, God himself created the visible
0: world in all its richness, diversity, and order. Scripture presents the work of the Creator symbolically as a succession of six days of divine work concluded by the rest of the seventh day. The account of the fall in Genesis 3 uses figurative language but affirms a primeval event, a deed that took place at the beginning of the history of man. Revelation gives us the certainty of faith that the whole of human history is marked by the original fault freely committed by our first parents.
1: So, according to the Catechism, Genesis 1 presents the work of the Creator symbolically as a succession of six days, and Genesis 3 presents the fall in a way that uses figurative language but affirms a primeval event, a deed that took place at the beginning of the history of man. Now, the church hasn't said how we're to interpret the events of Genesis 6, but the same principle should apply. It pertains to history in some way, but it also likely does so in a way that uses simple and metaphorical language, that expresses something symbolically and in figurative language. Can you give us an example of how that might work? In his book, Reversing Herman, Michael Heiser mentions an idea that some people have proposed regarding the idea that the angelic sons of God mated with human women. This understanding sees the idea of the sons of God fathering the giants as a symbolic rather than a literal expression. It invokes the parallel of God helping Abraham's wife, Sarah, become pregnant with Isaac and thus indirectly becoming Israel's father. You know, we have later passages where God calls Israel his son. There is no sexuality involved here. God does not mate with Sarah. He doesn't even bring about a virgin birth like he did with Jesus. But God does increase Abraham and Sarah's fertility so that they're able to miraculously have a child in their old age. Perhaps, this interpretation suggests, the fallen angels didn't mate with human women, but they used their powers to interfere with these women's pregnancies, so that the children were unusually large and aggressive, resulting in extra tall people who fought battles and earned reputations as men of renown. Then, as a literary device, this supernatural intervention gets described as if The fallen angels themselves had fathered the children. On this interpretation, you wouldn't have to say that angels can literally mate with human women. You could say that they're incapable of either mating directly or procuring the human germ cells needed to mate. All they would need to do is be able to get certain humans to mate with certain other humans in a way that would produce big, aggressive offspring who could fight battles and become men of renown. And it's hard to see how they couldn't do that if, as the sources of faith attest, they can stimulate people's temptations. All they would have to do is tempt certain people to mate with certain other people, and you'd get the big aggressive offspring thereafter. Uh, I'm not saying this interpretation is true, but given the amount of figurative language in the early chapters of Genesis, I can see how the idea of fallen angels manipulating humans to produce big, aggressive offspring, could be spoken of as the angels fathering such people. And that's just one example of how figurative language could be used in connection with this passage. There are other ways. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on the Nephilim? I think how you take this text depends on a variety of factors. If you want to take it Zechariah Sitchin's way as supporting ancient astronauts, you basically have to throw reason to the wind. From the reason perspective, it's clear that the author of Genesis is demythologizing ideas from Mesopotamian culture. He's providing an alternate theologically accurate account. The question is, how far is he demythologizing them? Based on what we know about the literature both before and after Genesis, the evidence suggests that the sons of God are fallen angelic beings and the Nephilim are the large aggressive offspring they fathered with human women. That fathering might have been literal if you think angels can cause human women to become pregnant, or that fathering might have been figurative if you think angels could merely get humans, e.g. by temptation, to produce large aggressive offspring. Or if you think fallen angels can't interfere with human reproduction, even by tempting certain humans to mate with certain other humans, you could propose that the text involve rulers mating with ordinary women to produce ancient men of renown. So, Jimmy, what further resources can we offer the listener? We'll have a link to Zechariah Sitchin's book, The Twelfth Planet. We'll also have a link to a new book by Michael Heiser called The Anunnaki Gods, According to Ancient Mesopotamian Sources. This is a book that presents scholarly literature that has not been available to English speakers until now. So one of the things that's hampered this discussion is the fact that a bunch of the scholarly literature was written in German and people just didn't have scholars they could look to to counter Zechariah Sitchin's narrative. Michael Heiser has really done a lot of work in English to help correct ideas that Sitchin has been promoting. Also, I want to give a shout out to Mike because he's a nice guy and I've interacted with him a number of times. He's always been very nice to me, but he had several pieces of scholarship translated from German to help English speakers out. And so check out the Anunnaki gods, according to ancient Mesopotamian sources. We'll also have a link to Michael Heiser's book, Reversing Hermon, that I quoted earlier, and his book, The Unseen Realm. And I want to mention, he is a big advocate of the idea that the sons of God are angelic beings. He says they're created, divine, heavenly beings. They're, They're basically angels. He is a big advocate of that idea. We'll also have a link to Wikipedia's page on Zechariah Sitchin and its page on the Anunnaki. We'll have a link to Michael Heiser's webpage on Sitchin's Shumuk rocket claims. And we'll have a link to episode 43 that deals with UFOs in medieval art.
0: All right. Very good. So uh, we do have some mysterious feedback from listeners. And uh, these uh, deal with our recent episode on alien implants. And the first feedback comes from Marianne on Facebook, who writes, uh, I am enlightened and
1: disturbed. (laughs) I'm glad you're enlightened. And the idea of aliens implanting stuff in our bodies is indeed disturbing. (laughs) Yes, Marianne, you are not alone in that. Stephen on Facebook writes, does someone still have all the items they collected? Uh, I don't know that they're in a central place. My understanding is that they were largely returned to the people they were taken out of, although some of them may still be collected and housed somewhere.
0: Okay. And then uh, Daffy David on YouTube writes I've been called a smart guy by some, but nowhere close do I have the memory capability of Jimmy Aiken. I'm convinced, however, that Jimmy Aiken tested and at one time used the same. Plastic educator device that Doctor Morbius used, which was built by the Krell, in the movie Forbidden Planet. Uh,
1: maybe, but uh, by my understanding, I'm still classified as a low grade moron by Krell standards. <laughs> All right. So, uh, oh, and I'm I'm gonna have to go in a minute. My evil self is at the door. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, but well, before that, uh, the evil self shows up. Do we have uh, some mysterious
1: headlines for folks? Yeah, these both have a UFO A-tip theme, which is kind of appropriate given our alien implants and Nephilim themes today. First, the Navy has said that releasing more UFO footage would gravely damage national security. Mm. So they have more UFO footage. They're not releasing it because they say it would hurt our defense. Also, the mysterious naval inventor, Salvatore Pais, has given an interview so there is even a question about, is he a real guy? Well, read what he has to say and see what you think. All right. So as we close things out, we do, I do want to make an
0: appeal to the listener to F- ask you, what are your theories about the Nephilim? We we want to hear from you what you think of all of the evidence that Jimmy lays out and the arguments. And, you know, you give us what your, fee- your, your feedback is, your thoughts, uh, and you can tell us what you think online, where we are. SQPN.com slash mysterious or Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World Facebook page. You can send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or send a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback.
1: Jimmy, I do want to ask you, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week, we're going to be talking about the Nemesis Death Star Theory Mm. and why mass extinctions have been occurring on
0: Earth. Interesting. Well, that's no moon. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, but folks, if you have not subscribed to the show, if you're listening to it off of a web page or something, please subscribe uh, anywhere you can get podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Spotify, your favorite podcast app, or you listen on YouTube, you can go to the SQPN YouTube channel where you should make sure to hit the bell to get notifications. And you'll find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to those mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, help us continue to produce the podcast uh, by visiting sqpn.com slash give and becoming a patron.
1: Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And if you heard a doorbell earlier, it's because Dom put it in in post.
0: <laughs> and once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. Okay, now I'm going to have to do that.